Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and my guest today is the creator of Vanguard Comic and Viper, and he is that all-important third part of the awesome comics podcast. I have now collected the full set. <laughs> I have got Dan Butcher with me. Hello, Dan. Hello. It's rare, a rare thing to get all three of us, yes. I've got to say. Not many podcasts have done it. Go and catch them all. So I've now got the, <laughs> I've now got the, the, the triple. Um, Dan, before we get to today's book and talking about Pat and Kevin Neal, um, we do mm. 2000 AD or comics origin stories. What was your first comics? God, it's going to have to be the old school kind of like Beano or Dandy. I'm pretty sure of it. Uh, I didn't come to 2018 to a bit later, but I think it was one of those stock things my parents got me and my brother uh, when we were younger. Got handed like the Beano and the Dandy, and, and I think it went on from there to like picking up Transformers in the news agent. You know, the, the kind of the, the general route that the average UK comic buyer, well, comic reader from the, the 70s would go. Uh, kind of, you start on the, the lightweight stuff, and then you kind of end up on <laughs> 2000 AD, which I was relatively late to as well. A, a friend of mine gave me for some insane reason he was going to give away a lot of his comics, and he literally gave me a black bin bag full of 2000 ADs, none of which were hang, I hung on to, which was rather foolish. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, I got into it that way. <laughs> well, we all wish that we'd hung on to comics that we gave away when we were younger. Um, when did you, I mean, when, was it from there, did you go to American comics then? It was literally, every, I can remember secondary school, everyone was reading uh, the kind of the, the usual standard stuff that you get from the newsagent. And then someone came in with an American comic and they started saying, back in the day, there used to be a comic in comic shop in Croydon, because I grew up in South Norwood, uh, called The Phantom Zone that opened up. And it was like a comic shop. It was kind of like a revelation. So we went down, got the bus to Croydon after school and it was obviously stacked to the gills with American comics. And that was the first time I can recall seeing as well, Akira, they had Akira on uh, a TV screen and they were just looping it all the, all day through the shop. And I didn't really know what that was, but I got stuck like headfirst into the, the comic stuff. And uh, I think it was like uh it's like a coach trip or something. And I bought uh, Avengers Assemble. It was like Avengers Annual, Atlantis Attacks. And I, I kind of knew most of the characters because I used to get like the Spider-Man annuals for Christmas and stuff like that. And I knew most of the characters. A lot of them I was like, oh, the bloody hell is this? But that kind of kicked off the uh, the superhero binge, which I've pretty much been on now for better part of 34 years. <laughs> If we add up all the time we've been reading these comics, it's a long, long time. Um, let's get to today's book then. Tell us about what you've picked to come on the book club with. I've picked a book, uh, Martial Law, the initial six-issue epic miniseries from uh, 1987. Uh, that's the one I've gone for because it's... This book and both of its creators have kind of loomed large over my work and... It kind of set that it's like a gold standard they've set that I've measured a lot of things up from afterwards to to this title. So we'll just quickly do the creator credits. Then obviously Pat Mills and Kevin Neal we're going to be talking about. Um, lettered by Phil yep. Felix, editors for Marvel Epic was Steve Busolato, Daniel Daniel Chichester, and of course Archie Goodwin was the editor of chief of uh, Epic and responsible often for. Um, some of these, because uh, I was just talking to Tony on his podcast about Archie Goodwin and um, Akira, you mentioned Akira, because they were doing Akira on yeah. Epic as well. But anyway, so yeah, this is the yeah. 1987 miniseries. We'll talk a bit later, because you know, obviously Martial Law goes on a bit of a journey after that in terms of publishers. Mm. It's, I guess it's probably called Fear and Loathing now, is it? Or it was collected in a Fear and Loathing collection. <sighs> Possibly. I think it was a bit like Star Wars, like they called it Star Wars, and then when other stuff came out, they went back and retroactively called it A New Hope. A New I think Hope. this is the same with this. <laughs> okay. They, they came back and like, now this is Fear and Loathing. And when, I believe that to be true. It uh, might not be. Right. And when did you first read? Uh, when did you come across Martial Law? It was in Toxic. The oh, You know, nice. they kind of... Because uh, when Toxic came, it was at 91... I sort of a couple of years into secondary school and some, one of my classmates come in with uh, toxic issue one and 
I've read that over lunchtime and it was like, what is this? It was kind of, uh, it was like a, a 2000 AD for a, the, a new generation, which was essentially, it was just 2008, a, a sister magazine to 2000 AD, but obviously a, a rival. And uh, Martial Law just absolutely grabbed me, as well as The Driver. I've got to say that those two stick with me. Did Pat Mills do The Driver as well? Was he? Did he write that? No, or was did, that someone else? I can't remember offhand. We did The Driver uh, on here, but I can't remember. Oh, we did Toxic, rather. Um, I'd have to look that yeah. one up. But yeah, I remember. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, that one stuck with me. But you're definitely uh, Martial Law. That was like, God, this is amazing. And it wasn't till a little bit later, which I, when I got the the trade. Right. So you picked up the trade a bit later on. Yeah, it's kind of. I think the it went the the Toxic one. I'm not sure if it serialized the uh, the Fear and Loathing, or it kind of jumped onto the the one with the undead, the hateful. Dead, yeah, it was the hateful dead. They 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 had like the the zombie one with uh, the black scarab in it, and I kind of I had to go and seek out where this character had come from, and then that led me back to the uh, initial run, which for me is the the best of the character. I, I don't mind. We, we'll talk a bit later about like the other stuff he, he the character goes on to do, but uh, that initial run was uh, pitch perfect to me. Okay, so let's focus in on the six episodes or the six issues of the epic miniseries. Um, give us mm. the sort of like the synopsis of who Martial Law is and the setting for this, um, well, bizarre story from Pat and Kev. Yeah, it's set in a uh, future 2020, uh, which we've sailed past now, but uh, it's post-apocalypse San Francisco after a huge earthquake and they've kind of rebuilt on the remains in parts of the city and it's now called San Futuro. Uh, large parts of the city is like it's all but like an active war zone between superhuman gangs who are essentially ex-soldiers from uh, a war which is like a thinly veiled metaphor for the Vietnam War called they call it the zone whereas in in South America uh, it's relatively vague uh, on purpose uh, the only thing that kind of keeps these warring gangs and superheroes in check is one of uh, an ex-soldier an ex-screaming eagle called martial law which is the, the the title character, and the initial six uh, six issues of the series revolves around uh, martial law as he, he tries to hunt down and unmask uh, the sleepman, who's a, a serial killer and rapist who preys on uh, women who are dressed up as another superhero called Celeste. And uh, this Celeste character is currently the girlfriend of kind of like the, the Superman of the story, who's called Public Spirit. And uh, ultimately, martial law absolutely hates the public spirit because he kind of idolised him as a as a kid, and he now sees him as kind of a figurehead for everything that's wrong in the world around him. He's like he's fraudulent, hypocritical, but he believes Mar- uh, public spirit is the sleepman. And essentially, the series is martial law without proof and no backup from anyone. He's the only one who believes it. He goes out to kind of prove that public spirit is the sleepman but it kind of comes to light there's it's a much more nuanced situation than it initially appears without going too much into spoilers yes it is it's a complicated situation yeah Um, well let's start with the central concept uh because martial law has this oft-repeated line he has about hunting heroes doesn't he yes i hunt heroes i haven't found any yet yeah no, that's that's kind of the, the central tenet to it. It kind of uh, of all these kind of arcs, the kind of this one, kind of like he has a bit of a kind of uh, a, a payoff at the end. The others kind of like descend into a bit more of a uh, oh look, here's a here's a Batman clone, here's a Captain America or a Spider Man clone. But uh, essentially, kind of uh, we might touch on this a bit later. But the concept, obviously, Pat Mills through this work, if you didn't know before, he detests superheroes and the concept of superheroes he just it, it absolutely screams out through this work he essentially martial law is like the the ultimate anti superhero and as when i first read that that was an absolute revelation because i was all about seeing like the marvel and dc characters like not putting a foot wrong being as good as gold and yeah. this was like whoa <laughs> I mean, it would be fair to say that Pat uh, has always had very strong views about authority figures Mm, and seeing superheroes as authority figures um, 
yeah, as you say, you're quite right. He hates superheroes, doesn't he? He sort of really got a thing about them and tears them apart in this series. Um, Now, you know, it's sort of a cliche to say that British comics have always had a slight problem with superheroes ourselves, but a lot of us Mm. grew up reading, you know, like yourself, the American superheroes and loving them. Is it's something strange about all these series which were then went to deconstruct and sort of tear apart superheroes that seem to be all be written by British writers, it seems. Yes, uh, I, I, I don't know why that phenomena is. Perhaps because somehow we can step on the outside and take a look in and sort of see that there's a there's a problem here do you know what i mean maybe maybe that's like our culture society that's kind of give us that ability to maybe take that angle i'm not saying writers from other parts of the world can't do that but uh the the brits certainly seem to be have a handle on it i think one of the things that comes through in the book and i find it a lot in pat's work is he has uh he talks often about class in his books and we often take the the view of kind of like the lower class or the underclass who kind of is under the boot heel of those above uh, in a societal structure. And in this book, the, the superheroes, uh, they're so hypocritical and they espouse like virtue and behaviors that they, they actively partake in behind closed doors. But to the public... They say you shouldn't have sex. You should abstain. You should do this. You should do that. But uh, you, 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 as a reader, we see that that's not the case. They're absolutely the worst, like perverts and fiends and drug addicts. And for me, that subject that that's like evergreen. I mean, we're going through something now in British politics, and by the time you listen to this, it might be something else where people are saying do one thing, and then they're caught doing the opposite. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's an interesting one, and and uh, like I find a lot of Pat's work, it it has themes like that running throughout. And uh, I, as I mentioned previously, it was the first time I'd kind of been presented with that look at things, and it was a bit uh, jarring, but in a kind of good way. I kind of like, okay, this is this is something different, and maybe sort of reframe my view on it. Right. And I mean. <laughs> He does. He just does this so well. The sort of like uh, mm. you know the underclass characters, because there's quite a lot of the sort of common people in here who are getting just getting sort of pushed around or used as cannon yeah. fodder by the superheroes, mm. isn't there? Yeah, There's, it's a very. I would hate to live in this world. Oh, I don't know terrible. anyone who would run it. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. It's like we we can talk a bit about uh, Kevin Neal's artwork later, but it's a grotesque, horrible overly sexualized violent it's full of just the the worst imagery the the whole thing is one of the things like the the superheroes are made by the the government enhanced or uh, infused and then they go on to abuse the people and society around them it's like this horrible circular system of just abuse and martial law is part of that but he seems to want to try he's seems to be driven by kind of like a greater good and actually wants to do some good in the world. But he hates it. He hates, hates himself, hates everything he does. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an interesting character. I mean, it seems appropriate that it's called Fear and Loathing in a way, isn't it? And he has that, mm. you know, on the front of his uh, on the front of his jacket. Let's just talk quickly about the look of martial law because he has a very distinctive look, doesn't he? Yeah, it's kind of uh, a lot of the other the Kevin Neal's designs. I think what they did, they actually came up with Kevin Neal came up with a design for Martial Law and presented it to Pat and said, "Look, I've got this guy." And then they started work on another idea, but then it brought round to like the story we know now. But like it, uh, for me, that's an odd concept: designing the character and then thinking, "Oh, that looks good. Let's come up with a story for it." For me, it's the other way around. I, I have an idea for the character. And then the look comes from that, but obviously this came out the other way. But essentially, like the the, the character design reflects uh, the narrative in that he's kind of like got a, a, a full body leather suit with zip like slash marks down either side of his face. Like so he's got the fear and loathing over his stomach. He's got barbed wire 
wrapped around his arm in a sort of perpetual kind of pain and torment. He, he finds it very difficult to to feel pain because of the uh, treatment he goes through as being a shock trooper. It, the, the zipper slap, he's got a zipper that goes right over his throat, which <laughs> kind of says it all. And if he's not sort of hammered home <laughs> hard enough, he's, he's got like a red cross over his face, which is inverted. So he's almost the, he's the bad guy of ever in some ways uh it's, it's it's an odd one it's a very distinctive look and i i did wonder whether because this is 1987 so it's yeah. 10 years after pat had a at least a hand in the creation of judge dread i mean obviously mm. you know it's john wagner and carlos Esquera mainly but pat had a hand in it um and i often wonder if he was sort of He'd looked at the success of the Judge Dredd strip in a way you can see Pat perhaps thinking, you know, why are we, why is this comic about this fascist cop being such a success? Um, hmm. And here he has another very sort of leather clad, um, you know, it's a, it's a very strange look for this title character who, who hates yeah. what he does and hates the characters around him who are doing all these terrible things. It just, I, it's like you said, it's very Pat, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I think Pat's very canny on kind of seeing what what will go down and what will sell. He, he seems to create with that in mind. And he's, that's not as a kind of, I'm not saying that as a detriment in any way, but he can, he, what I could say is he can read the room. And this, like, as you can tell, he's a hit maker. He can say, right, I'm going to do this character. And he understands that this character is going to land and people are going to like it. And his track record uh, is testament to that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're quite right. He's very canny. He's always mm. been um, very good at spotting what the uh, the audience is looking for at that particular time in comics um, and, and doing this. Let's, I mean, we'll talk about Kev's art, art then. Kev O'Neill, let's turn to him for a moment. Um, we got this terrible, some sort of post, there's been some sort of earthquake or something, I think, hasn't there? You know, it's all... Yes, it's, they call it the big one. Right. Um, so the streets, uh, there's, there's rubble, but it all looks very sort of, it all looks very run down and, and terrible with Kevin's yeah. art. And then the superheroes are garish and they've got, they've almost got, well, one of them has literally got the Vietnam sort of necklace of ears around his neck. Um, they all look ghastly as well. Um, it's very, you know, it's typical Kev O'Neill's art. It's very sort of distinctive looking, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, all the kind of, that gets me, every time I read this, I kind of see something new because the amount of detail that uh, Kev O'Neill's worked in. And it's the constant slogans and stuff that are all over the, the, the costumes now in the background that sort of have their own little commentary on the story and what's going on. And presumably Pat may have no input on that that's all kev so you kind of there's a little kind of uh kind of adds to the story in in ways perhaps like uh, another artist not as accomplished might miss out on especially when you get the big scenes where like there's a cityscape there's one bit where they go to kind of like a superhero park and there's all different like rides and attractions and it's just littered with stuff and I think as a kid you think oh man yeah we might go there but obviously when you know it, how it plays out not so much and uh, there's another bit where they go to like a kind of a brothel part of the city and again that's just absolutely grotesque like filled with like phallic imagery and really over the top stuff so garish but he's designing it to be that and it <laughs> it fires on all barrels it's just absolutely like yeah great it's great stuff and one of the things we are, we're used to from Kev O'Neill is there's lots of detail in the panels. There's lots of stuff mm. to look at, isn't there? I mean, as you oh, said, yeah. you've got the slogans, you've got the, the backgrounds, you've got the bits of graffiti. You've got these slightly odd, um, almost like one-page infomercials that appear in these issues, um, mm. which sort of reminded me... Um, they sort of tell us a bit about the city and about the creation of the superheroes and so on. It's almost like I was thinking of the Starship Troopers movie where they used to, they used to have those little um, advert breaks. Would yeah. In. Um, yeah. Again, Pat being very canny in his writing there, I think, uh, about it. And, you know, some stuff about there's even the collection, you know, like uh, collector cards, I think, for the superheroes. 
and they That's show right. the sort of like the the idealism and then the reality of it all, which was uh, very impressive. They, they sort of like a, they the the government produced ones or the commercially produced ones are kind of like the nice clean superheroes, and there was like a. Uh, a kind of in the underground lot that they produced, which is absolutely like trying to show the reality of it, which is absolutely horrible and probably more more real or truthful than the uh, the other ones they put out. There's also like a lot of uh, religious symbology in the book. Like yeah. I think the 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 kind of the stand-in for the Justice League of America are called the Jesus League of America, and often you'll see characters when they're they're being virtuous or being portrayed as being virtuous they'll have their head framed by a a circular light source giving them a kind of a halo of sorts it happens to martial law a couple of times and the main the antagonist uh public spirit happens to him several times as well when he's given like a kind of an uprising uh, an uplifting speech he's framed as kind of like standing in front of a sun or the moon with it, it around his head and yeah it's, it's it's an interesting one i mean even there's a moment there's a, a splash page in one of the beginning of the issues with a bomber flying over dropping like bombs out but the you've got the figure of uh, christ underneath painted like in the crucifixion pose and the bombs are falling out of the the belly of the craft right where his is and it's like God, that's that's a challenge in peace. Yes, <laughs> it's from this writer and artist. I expect no less. But God, if I was if I was given that as an artist to illustrate, I'd be like, "What am I getting myself into here? This is this is gonna <laughs> this is gonna go some." So uh, yeah. And I notice at the end, towards the end of issue four of this run, there is the superhero wedding that's supposed to happen between the public spirit and Celeste. And yeah. you mentioned the religious imagery because there's like some sort of bishop priest who's going to perform the ceremony and he's tricked out in a superhero costume, but it's covered in like advertising, uh, spend <laughs> for salvation and God as a nuclear halo and all that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts. It it's, is nuts. And yeah. of course, like any superhero wedding, it is um, gatecrashed by a supervillain, of course. <laughs> yes, as... As is want to, by yeah. Whenever there's a wedding, there's always it's gate crash weather. I, I mean, we could go into spoilers here. I presume most people might have read this, or yeah, I think maybe so. not. What well, do you think? I think we can give spoilers now. Here comes spoiler warning for the twist. Yeah. in the first part of Mar- martial law. So if you've not read the series, you got to get on it before we start talking about it. But essentially, the uh, it's the sleep man is uh, the public spirit's son, and. He, his mother is like uh, the public spirit's sort of first love, which is uh, Virago, who, according to the public spirit, was lost in a storm when they're out flying. But it just happened to coincide with him being sent into space, which he's he's sent on a 25-year mission our time, but it's only two or three for him. And the fact that she was pregnant would have jeopardized his position of being able to go. So he he confronts her and says, you've got to abort this kid, otherwise... Like, I'm not going and she says no I'm not going to and he proceeds to try and murder her and as far as we're aware as the reader and public spirit you think that's the case and throughout the story his son Danny is uh, masquerading as one of uh, martial law's aides in a, in a wheelchair he's called sort of like the, the tech guy and uh, the mother uh, Virago is uh, operating under Mrs. Mallon and she works in like a convenience store that martial law frequents all the time. Celeste and Virago are what he called uh, they're sirens, aren't they? Yes. And they can influence men through their their words. And essentially uh, Virago drip feeds poison into her son's ear from day dot to hate superheroes and think of himself as like he, he Basically, he, he he gives him a case of like psychosis. Would you say he he yeah. grows up hating himself, hating superheroes, hating his father, and just she kind of unleashes this misery on the world. Yeah, uh, the public spirit tries to murder her, and then she sort of does this terrible upbringing on her son, who then comes becomes you know corrupted and uh, becomes the sleepman. Yeah, I mean it's all very twisted and strange. Uh, yeah, and. Martial law essentially works out that Mrs. Mallon 
every time he goes into his shop, uh, store, she is shit talking superheroes, saying how you should kill them. You should, there's all of them should be dead. This one should be dead. That one should be dead. And she's been using her powers on him, on Martial Law Joe, to kind of incite him to kind of keep going, keep going at what he's doing and maybe going even more extreme. And he, uh, uh, he kind of reveals this at the wedding. He gate crashes the wedding goes to point the gun at public spirit and you think, oh my God, he's going to kill him. But he spins around and points it at the maid who at that point is unmasked to be Virago. And it, the kind of story spins off from there where she tells a backstory of how, how she brought Danny up. And that, that's kind of like the final arc of the story. We'd say the final kind of near the resolution that, that kicks off the final kind of arc, arc of it all. And I just noted um, a couple of pages before that, and I think you spoke about this on Tony's podcast. There's the because uh, the public image of the public spirit is obviously he's Superman, he's Captain America, he's as good as gold, white and yes. white. Um, but he's doing a press conference about the wedding, and he gets asked, you know, if you and Celeste have a child, that child could become the most powerful superhero of all time. And there's a sort of look passes over his face, which is very well done by Kev O'Neill. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just like, you can see that he hates that idea, doesn't he? God, yeah, that's like the worst idea to like someone t- stealing his thunder. Like, no way. that. Yeah. And, and he, well, he's had a brush with this before, hasn't he? And he, we can see <laughs> yes. how he reacts. That is not going to happen. He, yeah, he's obviously the... For the Marshall, he's the worst one because when we look at the beginning of the book, uh, Marshall is looking up to the public spirit as kind of like this is what's right in the world. And public spirit is kind of noble and just, and he's all about America and doing the good thing. And through his kind of uh, lead, Marshall joins the army and becomes a superhero shock trooper. And then he, he kind of re- re- realizes what an absolute mess it is and how corrupt and messed up the public spirit is. And talking about, you know, corrupt and messed up, Kevin Neal's artwork for American comics, famously too, uh, too ugly and disturbing for Green Lantern, the Green Lantern stories. He did yeah. Alan Moore. Um, <laughs> That's nuts as well. Yeah. He didn't write, it was like green, I wrote it down, Tales of the Green Lantern Corpse Annual 2. Yes, that was it. And it proved to be, to the Comics Code Authority were just like, no, you're not having this. What could we do to And I think DC it? changed it up. Uh, yeah. Uh, nothing, no. <laughs> and the, and the, they said the entire thing, the whole style is objectionable. We don't want it. <laughs> it's just, uh, it reminds me of a story. My, my uh, friend uh, got some school work back from the teacher. This is years ago, obviously. And the the teacher had circled the entire front page in red pen and said, do not waste my time. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, well, where do you go from there? It's yeah. just <laughs> Please don't submit yeah, yeah. more of All this done. artwork, Mr. O'Neill. Yeah. <laughs> I think it did get published, didn't it? But without the, the comics code. Yes, I think it did. And it certainly it's available in trade now. Because, you know, a lot of, if I remember rightly, a lot of, Possibly the DC event Blackest Night sort of drew from that those Alan Moore stories. I right. Think. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. I- well, yeah, we find like a lot of the stuff uh, the comics nowadays still draw back on these kind of these old tales, and because there's there's such a strength and the kind of the creative teams behind them are so just putting it out there and going for it. It's yeah. Yeah. And Kev O'Neill goes for it on every page. And the character design work he does for all these terrible superhero, these superpowered, um, I don't know what you'd call them, criminals rampaging across San Futuro. Uh, but, you know, he gets to put in all the characters. You get, you get sort of, some of them look like, I don't know, sort of slightly uh, trope type superhero. Some of them look like fairly thinly disguised versions of real characters. Um, yeah, I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at one that looks a bit like DC's cyborg character, except he has some sort of weird groin attachment in a typical sort of you know <laughs> Kev O'Neill fashion. Uh, yeah, so great stuff, and he color. I think this is in coloring himself, isn't it as well? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, it, it, it must have taken so much work to do this. 
Yeah. Must have taken so much work. If I've got one criticism about Kevin O's artwork, and as I don't think he handles action too well. Right. It comes across very, very stilted and kind of everything's quite solid and it doesn't feel like there's a lot of movement in there. There's other times which there is, but obviously that that's his style. That's the way it is. It, it, it's very kind of like, how, how would you describe it? It's like a, a flash in a moment, like everything's frozen as a comic image is, but they, I don't get any sense of like, oh, this is flying there and that's flying there. Like maybe because I've been reading a lot more manga recently where they're kind of the, the action is a bit more frenetic and you can, they've gone to pains to illustrate movement. Whereas, uh, maybe it wouldn't, so it wouldn't work so much in his style. I don't know. Okay. Um, I'll ask you one, a couple more questions about it. One is a slightly tricky question because martial law has got a girlfriend, uh, Lynn, yes. who is raped and murdered by the sleep man. Yeah. And this was 87. So this was, I think the Green Lantern, again, Green Lantern, I think Green Lantern's girlfriend was killed and put in his fridge in 1994. And Gail mm. Simone came up with this, you know, defined this concept or talked woman about this concept. Woman in the fridge. Yeah, that's right, the woman in the fridge, in which the girlfriend is, you know, the wife or girlfriend or significant other is is killed in order to motivate the, the, the hero character. Um, mm. And, that, I mean, it is, there's quite a bit, yeah, of this, well, you know, the the superheroes, they're all juiced up on anabolic steroids and they're all, as you say, they're all sexually rampaging across San Ventura as well. So there's, there is that in it. Is it, mm. you know, is that uh, in a way a slightly easy trope for Pat and Kev to have done, the sort of rape revenge um, for the murdered girlfriend? It's, uh, I've thought about this and the it, it, it's not targeted at it, in in the story at least like the sleepman character doesn't go after lynn because she he knows that she's martial law's girlfriend right he he's attacking everyone as celeste and it's just a horrible moment where the the, the lynn character goes out because she's kind of very anti-establishment and she goes to a protest with two other guys dressed as celeste to say look this is ridiculous these superheroes are, are awful and she kind of gets disgusted with the protest after she finds out the two other people just wanted to see her dressed up and storms often goes home. But there's a kind of the sleepman as he, his internal monologue is visualized on the page where we get to see it as readers as kind of pull out boxes. And as she's walking home, you start hearing the voice and it's like, Oh no. And that's when sort of like he attacks her, but essentially Marshall is going after him anyway, but it, it's a tricky one. I, th- I think they could have done without it. it the, the character didn't need the motivation to go after him. He, he already had that. And uh, the initial, the, the loss of her doesn't, maybe a shot that. I don't know. It's hard. I, I couldn't pretend to, to, to know why they did that or. I did uh, notice last night that in, cause you're, I don't think your, your floppies are with you at the moment. You've got the, the trade collection, which probably doesn't have the letter pages in it. Because in issue no. four, there's a letters page and a chap called Mike Noon from Brighton, England, of all places, actually calls them out okay. on the, you know, the, the murder of the, uh, the rape and murder of the girlfriend as a way of motivating the hero. He's saying it's crass, old fashioned and sexist. And the editor replies that Lynn's rape and murder was not an idle choice by Pat and Kevin, nor was it an example of creators being given free reign. It was uh, part, an important part of the overall storyline and themes. So... At least, at least it was mentioned in the letters pages, and they, you know they did. Yeah, part that's of good that they actually address it in some. Yeah, I mean the the, the character of kind of Sleepman, he's kind of uh, been set off on this this kind of destructive path, and he idolizes martial law, as does uh, the mother figure. So it, it's not like they chose. Uh, I'm not justifying what happens in any way, but he's kind of just like a a, a fire hose going off and. She gets caught out in it, and it's awful. But the, the, I think at the end, he sort of he has regret for it. He says, I, I, "I didn't know she was who she was," but I don't think that would have stopped him anyway because he was an absolute psychopath. But uh, yeah, maybe there is some merit into why they put that in. Would it be the same without it? I think it probably would. Like it, it's not particularly needed. Even yeah. more so now, in reflection. Maybe it was at the time. It was like 
we get to do what we want and this is a good shock value the, the murder of the girlfriend is it was a common kind of trope in even the 80s 80s cinema like you, the the main hero's girlfriend or wife gets kidnapped or killed and then they're off on a revenge mission but the martial law already had that motivation anyway so yeah okay mm. i mean it's an interesting point and it is a sort of i suppose content advisory for martial law because uh, it does deal with a, a you know a villain who is raping and murdering women um yeah. Let's go on to slightly perhaps easier ground and talk again about British writers um, deconstructing or, in fact, tearing apart superheroes. Because Watchmen is a couple of years before this. Zenith, I noticed in yes. 2000 AD, comes out pretty much the same year. Um, hmm. I suppose the obvious one is 20 years later, we're going to get The Boys from Garth Ennis, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. And that's got to I mean, something th- to martial law. Big time. I, I think, uh, without calling out too much, I think the the boys burrows heavily off of martial law and the whole kind of superheroes presenting themselves as good, but actually they're, they're deviants and the boys have to kind of put them in into check. It, obviously, it's a different angle and a different approach. But as soon as I started reading the boys, I was like, oh my God, this is very similar to the way martial law plays out and the ideas and themes behind that. So, as far as deconstruction goes, I've got a, a, a limit for it. I, I don't mind reading it, but uh, we you can't have you can't deconstruct everything all the time because you're left with nothing. You, you need something to. But the, the reason those comics worked is because there was such a massive foundation and it hadn't been done before. There was so such a, a, a an archive, a backlog of superhero characters, and this view hadn't been taken of de- deconstructing and breaking them down. But it seems that every other comic you pick up, it's we're, we're deconstructing Daredevil, we're, take, we're deconstructing Batman, we're doing this and that, and it's just like, oh man, can we just have some straight stories yeah. <laughs> for once? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, how do you feel on that? Amen. Well, I just I'm just interested in this British aspect, and I, you know that people like Garth and Alan Moore, um, Grant Morrison, and of course here Pat have done this thing of looking at superheroes yeah. and saying, well, there's something something strange going on there. There's something dodgy going on there. But like yourself, I still you know I still love a superhero story, and I still love mm. a nice straightforward superhero story where they you know. They saved the saved the day, you know. They beat up they they stopped yeah. the bad guys. Um, I, I was going to say, you know, I know you've talked about this recently on the on the pod about you know just even having them where it's not always caught up in some huge event. Where the ones where they're just like you know they stop the bank robbery. They you know yeah yeah they, they save somebody from the muggers. That's in a way you like to see that from time to time. Yeah, exactly. It's. Uh... I wonder back when the time, and maybe it was a more of a political thing, where kind of people were were looking at kind of American politics and seeing what was being espoused uh, in public and on the media and what was actually going on. Uh, Maybe that's a bit too involved and too in-depth, but I can imagine Pat's a very well-educated and well-read man. And uh, if you follow him on social media, you know he's kind of... he, he, he. he's got a, a very a vast knowledge of kind of stuff going on and it, you'd see stuff behind the, the he'd have commentaries of what what was behind what war i mean through charlie's uh war he kind of comments on uh, the other narrative perhaps that you wouldn't hear so much especially back in the day and maybe that was the british writer's response to a kind of what was being presented in the media and actually what the actuality of what was going on in the world uh was I, I don't want to kind of paint them as kind of like being like some anti-American mob who wanted to tear them down, but maybe just wanted to present a more radical, different view on it. Does yeah, that make sense? I, it does, and I think it's very interesting because I think you're quite right. I think Pat's one of Pat's problems with authority is the difference between the public image and the public, or you know, the private actuality that they would, hmm. you know, like religious figures espousing, you know, purity and then doing horrible things behind closed doors. Yeah. And as you say at the moment, we've got politicians saying one thing, doing another, as it ever was, I suppose. Um, yeah. And the superheroes hmm. who sort of, you know, truth, justice and American the way, but in actual fact, they're just terrible, 
terrible creatures doing terrible things across this uh, weird post-apocalyptic landscape that Kev's drawing. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed all those takes on superheroes. I really enjoyed the boys. I think Garth, you know, has done a fan, fantastic job on that. As you say, it's a slightly different approach to it. But I just, I was struck by those similarities by British writers getting hold of these characters and then tearing them apart. Yeah, it's definitely something there. I kind of uh, a kind of a more learned take on it. Uh, some other than me might be able to kind of get to the nub of the issue of, of, of why that works so well and, and what kind of insight and perception they've got to kind of make these take these like present these great takes on the subject. Uh, it's it's very interesting. Yeah, maybe not one I'm completely qualified to answer, but a uh, no, good observation. It's- it's an interesting one for us. But anyway, so let's just talk a little bit about martial law's journey after this because um, Pat Mills famously deci- described them being asked to write this title for for uh, Marvel Epic Comics as the fox being let in amongst the chickens. Uh, <laughs> um, he, they do one more one-shot, I think, that Martial Law Takes Manhattan for Marvel Epic, and then it goes on a bit of a journey through publishers. Uh, it does, as you say, mm. end up in, in the pages of Toxic for a while, um, there was something called Apocalypse Comics, which I think was part of that as well. And of course, since then, there's been even novels, which I haven't read any of the novels of Martial Law. Same. Right. Brooks- I didn't even realise there were any. No, I only just saw it on the Wikipedia page, apparently. Yeah. I didn't know about them. But presumably you've gone on and read the rest of it as well. I think the only ones I haven't read, I've not read the second part of the Pinhead one, and I've right. not read Savage Dragon and Martial Law. All the rest of them I've read. So those are the crossovers, because there were some crossovers, wasn't there? Yeah, I I did. I liked the, the Pinhead versus Marshall in the first part. I just don't think I ever got around to getting to the second one. And I think most of those, I know that the, because let's say there's a Fear and Loathing trade paperback, which is about £35 of Martial Law, hmm. which collects this series, it collects the toxic stuff, the apocalypse comic stuff. I think most of the Dark Horse yep. stuff. I don't think it has the crossovers in there. I don't think you'll find no. Savage Dragon in there. And then there's a deluxe edition, um, which is now only available in digital, which is currently £24 on Comixology, although by the time this podcast comes out, that might be, who knows, Comixology. You might even be able to read it on that. No, exactly. What one have I got? I've got, this one's out from DC, and I think it collects, yeah, right up to, it's got the Secret Tribunal in it. So yeah, it's got all of them apart from kind of, the crossover stuff. Right. But I don't think this is the, the deluxe one. It's just kind of like the uh, a collected version. I do have the deluxe uh, digital. I'll have to look in there and see what else is in there. Um, and Amazingly, the other little snippet I found reading about it was that there was it even got to a pitch meeting for a movie version, <laughs> which apparently <laughs> they didn't send Pat to, but they did send Kev O'Neill to it. But I don't think it went much further than a... Um, a meeting because it'd be difficult to see this one brought to the screen wouldn't it uh, yeah I, I don't know how you would even begin to sell this one the, the, if you tried to i can only imagine some kind of uh anodyne netflix style adaptation of it which just would knock i i wouldn't even know how you'd begin to capture the energy and everything this this comic puts out I, I, i'm not sure if it's impossible in film to be honest no, it it would be a strange one, a martial law TV series or film, yeah. yeah. Um, You'd have to have some like surrealist kind of imagery where the bodies are changing and morphing and being grotesque. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know how. <laughs> Before I get you to look back at the artwork and play the Grail Page game, um, was there anything else you noted about this particular six issues from Marvel Epic? I honestly the first every time I've read it for it I, I've got something different even today like I've, I've read it through a game before in, in prep for the podcast and there's a moment where uh, there's a, a one of the girls dressed up as Celeste is running away from the, the initial attack it's like in the first part of the story and she comes across a, a, a big nosed guy in a black cape and hat with a red scarf around his neck and he's got who knows oh, on right. his thing and it's, it's the shadow yeah, and he he runs off, and he goes. She's like, "Oh, can you help me?" And she's like, "Oh, sorry, that's the job for the police," and runs off. And it's like just a small little cameo of like, "Oh, that's 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 the shadow." And, uh, it's odd, it, yeah. It's, it's so much stuff going on, like uh, 
it's an interesting one and there's a lot of themes i get from this book that sometimes are like did i get that last time or just am i forgetting i i i, I, I forget but uh no i think we've covered the the the, the gamut of it there's uh You'll, a lot you'll, in there, find, but. you'll find lots of sort of thinly disguised uh, classic heroes in here, I think, getting the Kemp hmm. Pat treatment. It's, I think as they go on, essentially that's what the series becomes, doesn't it? It's like Martial Law versus the uh, thinly veiled Justice League or the JLA or uh, what's the other one, the Golden Age one? JSA? The, JSA, the Justice, Justice Society. Society yeah. I think that's, uh, what series is that? The It might be Super Babylon which is that yeah. one where it's East versus like the JSA and some of it is just like if if you've got a thin skin and you really like these characters you you, you won't take to that very well no okay well, what about <laughs> Kev's fantastic artwork which is almost certainly beyond our budget but if we had the fantasy budget and could get this artwork what page is he going to choose to keep there's three i always as much as i like splash pages i do like one where there's like some panel work but the initial uh there's kind of like a a, a shot where uh, the marshal's kind of like walking out coming over the crest of a hill after like decimating uh, a lot of superheroes and it's i think it's the first time you get like a full body reveal which would be an obvious go-to i can't imagine how much that would cost that's a, a full splash page the second one is there's a, a kind of a breakout a supervillain prison. You've got all these characters exploding out of the floor, which is just, that's another absolute gold one. And finally, there's it's kind of purely on aesthetic reasons. There's a shot. I've not got page numbers on this, so uh, you might have to help me out here, Aaron, when this goes live, where the, the marshals kind of like side on in profile, like a waist up, and you've got yeah. some panel work uh, above, which I would just, just aesthetically the the way that works is brilliant i should spend more time looking at kevin o'neill's stuff because the way he kind of sets up some of these pages and layouts is is great one thing i noticed when i was reading, reading my vision is the the gutters on the pages are black but the surroundings of the book are white yes Yes, yeah, I know. You see what you mean. Yeah, you got between the panels is all black line, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. but they no, they don't bleed the before. black off to the they don't bleed the black off on the edge of the pages. No. Let me just check my other volume. I think that I doubt they'd have changed that. Yeah, that's exactly the same. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I hadn't noticed. And going on to the later things, that's dropped. It's like there's the the black lines are not there, and there's a lot more sort of panels over the top of artwork. So that's an interesting thing. Obviously, a, a, a kind of a progression there from uh, Kevin O'Neill and the way he does his work. Fantastic. So we'll give you those pages. I will post them on the social media so people can see what we're talking about. They'll be on Twitter and Facebook Excellent. and Instagram after this episode comes out in a week or so. And people can see. And we'll give you all those pages. Uh, yeah, you know, we probably couldn't afford any Kevin O'Neill pages. No. But, um, uh, I hate we sort of look it up on eBay or one of those the, the comic art collector site, and I can only imagine how much they go for. Yeah, Usually, you but, think, "Oh, it's going to be a lot," and then you look it up and you think, "Lord, <laughs> that wasn't even close." <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot. Uh, right, so we'll give you all those pages. We will recommend Martial Law with the sort of content advisory that it is certainly very much uh, um, adults only, and there's there is quite a bit of uh, rape and murder in there. Unfortunately, yeah, I think if you kind of you're the kind of reader who would find what they've read in uh, Batman the Killing Joke objectionable now, yeah. I would not pick this up. It, no. it, it you would not. It's not for you because Definitely it's not. that it's, it's like a hundred times worse than that. And I know some people's sensibilities are kind of offended by what was presented in that trade, uh, and there was lots of discussion how bad it is now, but. That's relatively child's play compared to this. However, if you've read Garth Ennis's um, The Boys, then, you know, and if you enjoyed that... You'd be in the Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you'll really go for this. Get the Martial Law Collection, um, and it's great stuff. Dan, thank you for picking it. Interesting one to talk about. Um, lots of great stuff from Pat and Kev O'Neill. And, of course, Pat's been on the Awesome Comics podcast a few times, hasn't he? Yeah, I had the pleasure of speaking to Pat a couple of times. Uh, right. he, he's a re- like a force of nature, that guy. He's yeah, lot lot of my stuff. I feel like kind of I've taken 
see what Pat's son is like. Yeah, that's the, that's the way to do it. And when he espouses his philosophy of kind of like looking to see what's popular and then fashioning in a story that will key into that is that's interesting because he's got that commercial why it's not all about the art of like, Oh, I want to create this book because that's what I want to create. He's looking around and said, right, here's an idea of a cell. I'm going to create a book that I want to do and is creatively fulfilling, but also keys into that sales, which I feel depends how you approach it. If you're more commercially minded, like I think I am, I'd like to think I am uh, rather than, just doing something because you're right, this is the right thing for me to do. And I want to put this out into the world. You're kind of keying into that sales stuff. So, yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. Let's turn to your other guest projects. Tell us about what we would find at vanguardcomic.com. <laughs> That's, it's a bit of my, take a bit of like a uh, martial law, a bit of kind of Robert Kirkman stuff. And I've sort of fashioned my own superhero universe of sorts, which is uh, distinctly British and uh, a little apocalyptic as well and dystopian where uh, a a team of superheroes uh, who work for the government try and plot, uh, stop a plot to sort of bring down the the nations of the world and uh, fail spectacularly. And then the second arc of the story kicks off 10 years later after their massive failure where a, a new generation of heroes and wannabes try and pick up the torch and try and set things right. Uh, and that's ongoing. I think I've, I produced uh, book four, which contains the first 19 issues. I'm currently drawing, uh, publishing issue 20. Right. And I think it's going to go to about 24 issues and then the story's going to be done. So probably one more trade to come then, because I've got four trades, well, which I think I got from you excellent. at Thought Bubble. Um, yes. There's one more trade to come, I think. I want to keep it tight and finish on uh, five, but the, the fifth book might be a bit of a chunky one because there's going to be there's going to be extended action sequences. A lot of storylines going to be finishing up and being tied up. So, yeah, <laughs> it's going to it might be quite heavy. I put it that way. Uh, so, I mean, it's great stuff. It's British comics, uh, British uh, superhero team, and you say, and it's um, it's fantastic. And in, particularly in the fourth volume, your work's just getting so good, Dan. It's getting this is fantastic. Oh, thanks, man. Really I've been doing great. this for like ten, fifteen years. So when the first start, like, you can see the stumblings of where I'm trying to find my way forward, and I think you can track the progress of how I kind of hopefully improve as a, as a writer and artist over the years. Because it's, I mean, it's entirely, you know, it's, it's, it's written and drawn by you. It's entirely your own thing, isn't it? Yeah, I've had a bit of editorial help over the years from uh, a few people, like, uh, guiding me in the direction that this works, this doesn't. But essentially, it's I, I produce all the art, apart from the odd cover, which I like to source out occasionally. Uh, it's pretty much all me. Right. I see, I see you've got a cover from Damien Edwardson, uh, who's been on the podcast Cliff Cumber does yep. the cover, I think, for volume four. Book right? four. Yeah. I've got uh, Brian Vander does a cover for issue seven. I've got uh, Diz Ives does the book for cover book two. And uh, the the cover art on book three by Martin Simpson is absolutely a dynamic. Uh, I, I love getting other people to, to do their take on the characters. And they, I'm so blessed to have all of them doing their work. Uh, it's brilliant. Love it. Fantastic stuff. And uh, lest we forget Chris Imber, he did the book, he did the cover for book one and then like a callback to it on issue 19 where they're kind of uh, a team of bad, the bad version of the Vanguard come along who, right. who kind of worked for this, this, this kind of tyrannical government. So uh, that, that was great. So cheers, Chris. And you can find all this at vanguardcomic.com and then the links will be in the show notes for this episode. And we mentioned briefly during martial law some 1980s, uh, you know, action movies. If we stick yeah. with the 1980s and sort of spirit vengeance, tell us about Viper. Viper is kind of, uh, I sort of made it as like a, a TV show, which they would, it would go out maybe on a Saturday afternoon in the 1980s, but they would never make it. It's kind of all the things I used to love about like TV shows like uh, Street Hawk, Knight Rider, Airwolf with uh, a lot of, sort of 80s action films thrown in. Essentially, Viper is like a super high-tech uh, sports car 
that our main character Sloan Viprini drives and he sort of battles uh, drug lords in the 1980s Los Angeles. And it's got that great sort of 1980s neon look, isn't it? Yeah, I've gone for that kind of the synth wave kind of blue and pink neon. Yeah. Trying to trying to high, high, trying to make it very stylized and sort of key into all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a certain readership that uh, I think really appreciates it and it, it's kind of it's quite popular at the moment. So uh, hopefully I've got a sequel coming out any t- any day now. I'm going to be putting the Kickstarter up which tackles the 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 other the main bad guys in virtually every 80s action film which is the russians and it's uh viper soviet strike where uh, our team of heroes is put up against the soviet threat in in los angeles so keep our eyes peeled for that one well i will tweet the link to the kickstarter when it starts because that's the second uh, the second book is not too far away on kickstarter is that right you'll be launching that fairly it's, soon yes yeah, literally is literally just got to put the Kickstarter together and get it out. I've done all the book. I only need to kind of letter it. It's all ready to go out the door. I've spent a better part of eight months putting it together. I had to take a bit of a break from Vanguard. It's it's all done and dusted. It kind of grew from being a 30-page comic to like an XF of 50 pages now. So I, I can't wait to get it out into people's hands and get them reading it and see what they think of it. Because I've had a lot of fun making it, and hopefully you'll have a lot of fun reading it. Well, the first one was great fun, so I'm looking forward to the second one. And look in the show notes for links to Dan's work and follow at Vanguard Comic on Twitter, I guess, Dan. That's the one, yeah. Very much like San Futro. <laughs> Twitter is very much like San Futro. <laughs> it is, actually, yeah. The apocalyptic wasteland of Twitter, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, as I say, you are the third person, the third member of the Awesome Comics podcast, Three Amigos, uh, that I've had on yes. the show. And that continues out every week, sharing the love about comics, particularly small press comics. Recently done your Valentine's issue about romance comics. That was a strange one. Yeah, <laughs> not really a heavy romance comics reader. And I, I kind of uh, asked for suggestions and I ended up reading a, a Korean teen love <laughs> webcomic on webtoons called uh, True Beauty, which was very insightful. That was an interesting one. And, I mean, you know, if we jump from Korea to Japan, you're about to start in March the Manga Month with uh, the ACP. Manga Month. Yeah. Yeah, looking forward to that. I think we've all kind of... Tony has just gone in headfirst on manga. Uh, I think... He's deep into uh, it, isn't he? Yeah. I've listened to the the ones you and Tony have done on uh, Never Iron, and... We've both kind of gone into it, like, and it's strange to think I, I was very much in a sim- not quite the same mindset as Tony, but I sort of just rubbished it and passed it off. And to think back now that it's like I was just signing off all those comics just because I, of, I'd seen half a dozen comics that didn't appeal to me is mental. I don't know why I did that because there's such a wealth of titles on every subject and for every age range. Yeah. So uh, it's going to be fun exploring it absolutely i mean i'm looking forward to that uh you know i've just been reading a little bit of manga for tony's podcast but even so i'm mm. really looking forward to that and i mean the awesome comics podcast uh, if anybody's not listening give it a listen it's a great show every week comes out on a monday morning i, I look forward to it dropping into my feed oh thank you we try and like push like small press and small press creators and and so there's such a wealth of talent of people creating their own comics and and putting them out there that it's not all about uh, if there's a comic uh, somebody you want to read it's out there and also we we get uh, people creators come on to talk about how they create their comic and if you've got an idea for a comic and you're not sure where to go we've got a whole backlog of shows that delve into how to do it yourself how to set up a kickstarter how to write a comic how to commission an artist how to get it printed uh, it, it's all there for you and, and in basics like lettering, you know, the episodes on lettering and, you know, editing, and uh, as you say, even on proofreading, I seem to remember you've had the, the lady who does the proofreading on and so on. It's great stuff, a great resource for people who are trying to create their own comics as well. Indeed, yeah. I like to think so. And we've got some more stuff with that planned. We, we like to do a process month, at least once a year, where we have uh, shows dedicated to... Uh, I mean, to be fair, like, I date mine guests when they come on. <laughs> for like <laughs> how'd you do this how'd you do that and i think one of the the, the big uh problems not problems uh 
challenges, shall we say, that comic creators face nowadays is marketing and getting your comic in front of the people that want to read it because there's thousands of other people trying to do exactly the same. So that's a subject I want to look into. Cool. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm glad we I finally found somebody to do martial law with me. Um, and we got to talk Pleasure. about your own projects as well and the ACP. Yes. Well, we, we, me and you ticked every box. We did. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, find all the links to all of Dan's projects and the ACP at megacitybookclub.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the 2080 forums. And email me, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com, if you've got your own views about martial law or if you've got a book that you want to come on the show and talk about. And until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's goodbye from me and... Goodbye from me.